Okay, before we let you go, we keep it real on this podcast. So okay. I have like two quick ones for you because we haven't talked about this. Okay. But when I went to be like, oh, I'll hit up Hollinger. And then I was like, oh, he unfollowed me. What was the, I'm not great on Twitter, but what do you think was your breaking point with me where you were like, you know what? Fuck this guy. Like I, it was, it, was it a Grizzlies observation? Uh, we know it wasn't anything political because I don't know that I touch on any of that stuff. Hey, we get it. You like the SEC. Um, I don't think I'm not anti UVA. So I don't know that it was that I just, for the staff here, we want to know. I was like, oh, okay. And I don't want, and don't follow me now because I brought it up because I'll block you. All right. I don't, not looking for the fall. Do you remember when it was like, all right, enough of this fucking Rosillo guy? Uh, I think I was, I think I was working for the Grizzlies and, and was, uh, streamlining some of the, uh, media people out of my accounts. Yeah. All right. Maybe. That's John Hollinger, who at a time works in the front office of the Memphis Grizzlies. We'll get to that. But on this playoff season, his Gobert MVP vote and breaking down some of the other series and also esoteric of Czarface, his career, and specifically working with the late great MF Doom and Life Advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday. I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Okay, before we talk to Hollinger, some hoop stuff there, his time in the front office and uh, member Zarface, Esoteric. There's a couple quick little things that I want to do because I could do a bigger open on this if I wanted to. And I would title the podcast. I could do like 30 minutes solo on this if I really wanted to and come up with like 10 of them or I could go deep on just a few. But I'm going to keep it shorter here and have Saruti join me for a bit of it. And that is just irresponsible potential storylines after just a couple games of the first round of the playoffs, right? Um, because we've already seen coming off of game one in that first weekend, what I was trying to do with Bill the whole time, remind yourself, remind yourself, game one, it's game one. It's all we have to look at. There's going to be different stories in game two. Uh, Utah still has a job Morant problem. And Ja is just another level and considering where you'd be at with him in the regular season if you wanted to argue against him you could say okay yeah but you know is he really make other people better does he play enough defense you know is he is he a little bit too much about himself he can't really shoot can't really stretch the floor you know you looked at how golden state played him in the last regular season game and then it's like wait a minute 
now should I take this guy over Zion? Because that's actually happening right now. Uh, I want to ask Hollinger about it because he was still sort of with Memphis when they were using that number two pick, but he wasn't, which is, you know, he'll explain it. Um, but Sarudi, I do think the jaw Zion, because we just had, I mean, Ja do what he did against Utah here. And you can say, hey, it's the number one seed, but they didn't have Mitchell and they missed Mitchell again for part parts of game two, whatever. The Jazz figured out a way to do this. We're talking about 73 points his first two games. I'm not there yet, but there is nothing like the playoff glow up for the young generation of NBA players, the same way we had with Doncic last year and Ja now. There was never a conversation about Ja over Zion, considering what Zion was. Now it's happening after these two games. And beyond that, it becomes, well, how is Ja not a top five point guard? Because that's what happens too, is you'll have guys say, that guy's not top five. Like, that's crazy. And everybody gets super pissed about it. And then you're like, all right, put together your list of five and tell me where Ja is. Because I think most people accepted he was closer to 10 than he ever would have been five. But again, after his performances, game one and two, doing whatever he wants, I mean, they they just can't stop him. I mean, they can come up with schemes, and, and all, unless you want to build a Giannis wall and keep everybody else open, he's just impossible right now. Yeah, and I remember like around the draft, there was a, there were a few people that were saying, "Hey, you know, Ja over Zion." I just see I see the fit yes. in the NBA. Like, what is Zion going to be in the NBA? And I was kind of I don't want to say I was one of those people, but I was entertaining the idea of okay, I can see what Ja is going to be in the NBA. I didn't know if I could necessarily project what Zion would be. Now, Zion lit it up this year. He had on all of his stats in the regular season, basically, other than like assists. I mean, all the advanced metrics, like they all go to Zion. He's been the better player. Um, but I think there are, maybe are a couple arguments for Ja and that, okay, he's doing it in big games. He beat Steph head to head. He won two straight play in games to get into the playoffs. Um, I think you could argue that is the Grizzlies roster that much better than the Pelicans, you know, and Ja is the best player on the team and he led them to the playoffs in the same conference, right? And this is also a league that kind of seems to favor guards and wings and that type of player. Uh, so I think you could, I, I understand the argument of saying, hey, I think I would take Ja for five, 10 years over Zion. I wouldn't, but I can see how you would get yourself to get to that point. My problem, my only pushback from it, and and you're right, like Memphis isn't worlds better than New Orleans talent-wise, but Memphis knows everybody's role. Like they know exactly who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do. And if if Valanciunas has foul trouble, then they they have a fix for it. I love Desmond Bain. I love that guy. I love his comfort level, and he kind of figures out exactly which hole to fill depending on the group that's out there with him. Because, I mean, at some point, he was just straight-up spot shooter for him and felt like he hit everything. But I'm telling you, in college, he can do more. And the more he's trusted with in the NBA, like Bain is – I don't want to get too crazy with it because you could also say if I'm another team, I'm calling about Bain. Well, guess what? They're not trading him to you because he's super cheap on this rookie deal to back into the first round. Um, but I, I love what he does. But Memphis knows their identity. Everybody knows their roles. New Orleans clearly doesn't. But if the conversation for the entire season was how high is Zion as a player, not just Zion versus Ja, like is, is Zion bordering a top 10 player? Should he be all NBA third team? And then two playoff games later, we're going, no, Jaws the guy. That's where I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that you can go for five to six months with an accepted ranking of players, and then it all changes because of two playoff games. Um, but again, if you're sitting there arguing that Zion's at home, I can't say anything back to you. I think the reason that I ultimately would not say I would take Jaws over Zion, I would stick with Zion, is because 
Zion has that weird thing where it's like he could be he has this thing where it's, could he could be a generational guy. Like he could be something we've never literally never seen before in the league. I know what Ja is. Like th- there are guys like Ja, like maybe not an exact carbon copy of him, but like yeah, all right, Ja's a great player. But it, it's easy to project that. I think I would be I would still take Zion's upside and what he could potentially be as like this Draymond Green, LeBron, uh, Sean Kemp hybrid. And I would just say. If it does, if it, if it ends up not working out in five to ten years, then I'd be okay with that because I took a chance on his unbelievably raw talent. All right, and, and honestly, what if, what if De'Aaron Fox had sixty points in his first two playoff games and they were one and one? There like, are so many should... point guards that we wanted to do this with, and I'm not saying that Ja has probably done more than a lot of those guys that we talked about. De- De'Aaron's one of those guys. Like, oh, De'Aaron, is he creeping into the top five? The top five point guard thing seems to change like every every two weeks. It's uh, it's unbelievable. That position yeah. more than any other one is is t- totally volatile. Um. And, you know, if Ja has like a, a if they get bounced in a couple games here, he has a slow start to next year, then we'll completely forget about him. And it's, it's not going to be fair. But I just think the point guard position in general, it's we're, we change that list so often. I don't even know what to make of it. The two others that I would have done, speaking of point guards, and, you know, I caught a bunch of shit, I think, when I brought up the Booker part of like, you know, I don't know what his long term Phoenix thing is. And for anybody that, you know. You want to give me a hard time about it. It got aggregated a certain way. But I mean, everybody in NBA circles that knows what's going on has talked about this potential, you know, Knicks landing spot for a handful of guys, whether if Carl Anthony Towns ever gets upset, would he want to ask out? I, you know, you can't ever say no to any of this stuff anymore, by the way. All right. Kawhi taught us one thing, and that is never assume anything with a player or the team's best player um, because the Knicks have staffed. Um, Guys with connections to Utah, and they've they've staffed obviously another coach who has connection uh, connection to the Kentucky guys. So it was always like, well, if Booker ever got upset, you know, don't don't ignore what the Knicks are doing over there. Carly Carl Anthony Towns ever got upset, you know, Donovan's guy, you know, he's with him in Utah. He's over like that was the whole point. So the reason I bring up irresponsible potential storylines would be if Chris Paul's way more hurt than he seems to think he is, um, and he didn't look very good. Would that change the Booker part of it? Because Booker, Paul, Paul loves it there. Booker's happy as hell. Booker having Chris Paul is a completely different situation than missing out on the playoffs again and thinking, okay, you know, where am I going to be at now long term with this team? To ignore that as a potential possibility is foolish. Um, so I certainly would never do that with any of those guys. But I, I get worried about it. Like, how much could the Paul conversation change if now instead of the one-year player option, which is a massive, massive number, he's still under contract, but there was a thought that maybe he opts out and then he just does a shorter deal for more overall money, less annually, it happens. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe they like Paul enough to be like, hey, we'll play, pay the option. We still want to sign you after that. Who knows? I don't know the answers to those things. But Paul not being healthy if it were an early exit and then you're really worried about his future health-wise. But I, that, that in itself, is, as I'm finishing the thought, is irresponsible. So I'm going to stop myself there and get to the <laughs> next one that's an irresponsible storyline that's less irresponsible. But if your Kawhi angst and his future with the Clippers is at zero, I would say adjust the dial up a little bit on that one. I don't have info on this. Kawhi is as unpredictable as anyone. Um, people that would say it's lean, it's it's only leaned in one direction that Kawhi ultimately would sign the extension because of the money and being a little bit older and they're going to pay him whatever they can pay him and pay him beyond everybody else for somebody that's been on an injury maintenance program now for multiple years. So why would he turn down any of that extra money? But you don't know with him. And if they get bounced in the first round to think, unless it's like some secret done deal that I don't already know about, I got to tell you, like, it's, it's a weird 
it, it, it would, because it's Kawhi, you would have to be so worried. Like, what if this guy just says, ah, nope, I'm going somewhere else. And for everybody to be like, oh, he would never do that. He's already done it. He's already done it. So I, I really wonder how weird the Kawhi projecting stories could get. Not saying they'd be accurate, but how weird those could get if the Clippers get bounced in the first round. I want to talk about two incidents that happened last night that I knew would lead almost every show today. And I wish I could have bet money and made money on like, oh, I bet you this will be the topic. And that's the fan interaction and the bullshit that we saw in the Sixers-Wizards game. And then it looks like Trey Young got spit on or spat on um, by a fan at MSG. I, I don't know exactly what happened there. I've, I've seen the film, but we know for 100% that Westbrook had popcorn dumped on him as he was entering the tunnel. I find it really weird that a Celtics fan would show up to a Sixers-Wizards game, by the way. But when I hear about the punishment debate topic, I check out. I just, I just do. And I know you kind of have to do it, but it really becomes like a contest to be the most pissed off about what actually happened. No one's who's real is defending the popcorn throwing guy. Like the guy's an asshole. All right. Um, I don't know where our listeners on on the heckling thing. Right. Um, it can get to an age where you're like uncomfortable to be around. Like I get younger guys being drunk and yelling stuff. Like it's, it's, it's kind of like part of it. And maybe some of you never did it. And you think even young guys doing it is stupid. I just have more of a threshold of, of tolerance for younger guys acting like idiots and saying stuff, but certainly not anything that we saw where you're actually like dumping stuff on a player because I mean, it, it goes without saying it's absurd, but watching it on TV, it's like, wait, you're mad. You think you're mad about what happened? Wait until I get my five minutes and I'm going to show you how mad I am because then it's like punishment. And you go, okay, well, what needs to happen? I'm like, all right, ban him, ban him from the arena for, for how long? Cause nobody's going to say, 24-25 season seems about right. And then he can come back 25-26. Because then if you said that, you would be like, you're not taking this seriously enough. You're like, all right, what's, what's the right thing? All right, ban him for life? Okay. I'm sitting here being like, all right, fine. Ban him for life. I don't care. You think I care about this fucking guy? I don't. I don't care about him at all. But I am auto-tune out on let's come up with the right level of punishment. So it seems like... So you know how fierce I am on this topic. Um, there is a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect, I believe, between you know famous people, public figures, and non-famous people, non-public figures, despite what you may think about your wellness page on Instagram, Junior at Wisconsin. But there's almost this idea that, hey, well, if you have this life and you are this person and you are famous, then this is what you signed up for. And when I'm in a moment where I want to feel better about myself by dumping on you, I get to do it. And you're supposed to just deal with it. And you're never supposed to react. And that's just the deal. That's the deal that we've all made here in American society. And I'm sure, you know, look, it's not like it doesn't happen in Europe either. But hey, famous person, deal with my bullshit because that's just the deal. And I don't think it's ever been worse than it is right now because we have access to all this different stuff. But when something bad happens in a game I'd, I'd ask somebody like well what what do you think what do you think there is a version of this where it never happens like do you believe that that's even possible do you believe that we get to a point where you have thousands of games millions of fans and that there's going to be a zero percent incident rate because that's just not going to happen it's not going to happen you know lebron jumps in i mean what westbrook went off and he has every right to be super pissed off you lose 
you're hurt, you're in the tunnel, they're dumping popcorn on you, a guy that would never say anything to your face in a real interaction where there could be something, you know, costly happening to you physically, you would never, that, that guy would never say anything to Westbrook. I mean, honestly, anytime you've ever had anybody come up to you and then as soon as it's face to face, it's always like, oh, I mean, hell, even on Twitter, you can be like, oh, what are you talking about? If you do that, and then they'll say oh, like, oh, big fan. And then they retweet your reply. But when I'll see, you know, LeBron tweet about it, be like the NBA has to do something. NBA has to do something because there's also something that's happened more and more in society. And that is, is there any way that I can make my current situation look worse than it actually is? Right. Is there a way that I can present this as if me NBA player is a victim in this case. And in this case, yes, Westbrook is a victim and certainly Trey Young in that spot at MSG. But when I see LeBron go like the NBA needs to address this, it literally the incident had been minutes old, first of all. And I know that LeBron's doing it to make sure the NBA is held accountable. But do you think this is an actual NBA problem? Because I'd ask you again, is there any version of live interaction with fans and players in these settings where nothing is ever going to happen? Okay, because that's just not that's not going to this isn't Adam Silver's fault. There's there's nothing to do to make sure this is avoided 100 percent. So when it happens, it's kind of like, hey, we're all going to sound off and show you how mad we are. The media is going to jump in and be like, the NBA needs to step up. You need to ban this guy. Fine. Ban him. You need to embarrass him. Arrest him. Simple assault. Fine. Go ahead. Do all those things. I would never argue against any of it. But when it's presented as the league needs to do something like beyond what, like empty the arenas forever. Not have, you know, like just not have, we just tried that, by the way. And I don't think you're going to want that on the revenue split. I'll never forget like the first wake up call of heckling where I felt like an absolute asshole. Middlebury, Vermont, UVM, Middlebury lacrosse game. UVM wins. We're all going back to the parking lot to our cars. Middlebury player on a golf car. I think he was actually hurt. And he was being carted off to like a training room. And I said something like, yeah, you know, we got you or something stupid. It wasn't nasty. It wasn't like that. It was just me, bunch of guys. We're all looking at each other. He's carted off. We're all non-players going back to the car. Excited because, you know, those are all the roommates. They're all our best friends. It was a nice win. And the Middlebury lacrosse player just looked back and was like, play a sport. And it was one of the top five loser moments of my life where I felt like such a fucking clown. And I was like, yeah, I have, uh, I have no retort, none. And he was so dismissive and he was so right. And he delivered the line perfectly. And there was just silence amongst my group of friends because he was right. And trust me, it didn't bother anyone as much as it bothered me to not be a Division I athlete. So he hit me right in the soul. And I got to tell you, that stuck with me for a long time. It's been almost 25 years. And I just, for anybody who's on the heckling, antagonizing players side of thing, just bring that lesson with you next time you're sitting in the loge section. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. 
not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Excited to have John Hollinger join us. Uh, he was one of my favorite guests back in the day, uh, back in one of the original uh, podcasts, uh, going back well over a decade now. Yeah. At ESPN, senior NBA with The Athletic and part of the Memphis Grizzlies front office from 2012 to 2019. It's been a long time. John, what's up? Uh, I'm doing great. How you been? <laughs> Good. So there's a bunch of stuff that I want to get to. And, you know, we've been trying to book you for weeks. So now to have you on... The day after that Gobert uh, game, yeah. probably not great timing for some of the discussion that I wanted to have. Uh, I'm not an anti-Gobert guy, though, so I don't, I don't want to okay. do that first. Um, I think the big Bill and I were talking about it, too, because you have an MVP vote, correct? I do not have an actual oh, you don't. vote, but oh. no, I, I wrote a column as, as if I had a ballot, but I do not have a ballot. All right. Yeah, because probably the front office thing, they probably weren't in a hurry to give it back to you anyway. So um, it, you never know. I, I don't know how it all works. OK, so your MVP ballot, if it existed, but for the purposes of the athletic okay. was what? It was uh, Nikola Jokic one. Then I had Rudy Gobert second and uh, Steph Curry third. OK, I think the Gobert one is the one that blew a lot of people's minds. So sure. yeah. let's go. I, I think. People understand the defense part, I think, right? Like he's going to be defensive player of the year. He's he's the best defensive player in the league right now. You know, protects the rim, all that. I think his offensive value gets underestimated. Like the whole system revolves around him, even though he doesn't have the ball in a lot of ways. He's running around A to B to C, screen, 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 rim run, rim run, rim run. And he he's kind of like the energizer bunny, even though he's so big that he keeps – running around to do all this and he's so effective as a rim runner because he's just so long uh that the whole defense has to suck in and that's what makes all the three-point shooting they surround him with so effective is that these guys are taking you know lick their fingers corner threes because the guy from the weak side has to suck in so hard to take away the lob to to go bear so i think as an offensive threat he gets really underestimated and so to me, Utah had the best record in the league and their system is built around him, not just defensively, but offensively. And so like in terms of value, like I, I think, and he didn't, the other thing he and Jokic both had going for them, of course, is they didn't miss any games, whereas most of the other contenders missed considerable time. And so when you ask yourself, who was the most valuable over the course of this regular season, I, to me, he was second. The numbers for Gobert have always been something like I remember the first time seeing them and mm -hmm. and understanding like years ago. I remember like I'll never forget because Zach Lowe like was going back and forth with me and he's like, hey, who do you have for this or whatever? And he was like, have you seen some of the Gobert numbers? And I go, they're absurd. The on off court stuff. Yeah. Uh, the net rating defensively for him, because, you know, as somebody who has basically been one of I, I would say one of the most important voices in analytics being understood and, and just the value of the things that we look at versus what we used to look at traditionally, uh, you deserve a lot of credit for that. So when you started to understand those, you'd go, 
this is real? Like this on off is real with him? Like this is crazy how far away. And if you look at some of the box score plus minus stuff where he yeah. is defensively the same way that I've argued Steph offensively in comparison to the rest of the league is off the charts and all those things are great. I think the problem with having him second overall, at least on my side of it, is that when I went through, I was going through synergy and his per possession stuff, Like I think it's 82% of all of his offensive players are like dependent plays. It's almost like tall Clay Thompson, Clay's first two years where everything was clay off of someone else. Right. So he's not, pe people have a lot of trouble with the MVP right. not being the guy dribbling the ball 15 times and then taking a 20 foot pull up, right? Like that, <laughs> yes. that's just our idea of what the MVP should be, right? And he's not that guy. Exactly. But so he's also creating a lot for other people without ever touching the ball. So I, I think that's the part that gets missed. So how would you look at it then from a front office? Like, would you, when you're looking at him, and you would hear, say, a media member just trash Gobert and say, all right, yeah, but it, a lot of this is just hard rolls. It's offensive rebounds. If you post them up, no, there's no there's no stretching the floor. And the way we're so enamored with bigs that can stretch the floor, all that kind of stuff. Like, what would you talk about in a front office conversation when you would know that there's so many people in the media that look at Gobert and, and actually think he's incredibly overrated now or would look at your vote and think it's absurd? Uh, I mean, I just know from our time in Memphis, I mean, we were a heavily, heavily interior team. We could not score against Utah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's how you can see his value, at least from our perspective, is every, like if we beat them, it was like 76-73, you know? And, and this was, I mean, and this was even kind of the younger version of Gobert, who's probably, you know, wasn't quite at the level maybe he's played this year. This, to me, has been his best season by far. Um, even like even last season, I thought he actually slipped a, lit for a bit from his previous defensive player of the year level. And this year he's gone back up and even exceeded it to me. Uh, just, you know, to play, to, be, to play at that size with that level of energy, I think the whole game is really underestimated. Um, yeah, look, I, I've seen, you know, I've made a joke this year that, that Boston, when they played Utah, seemed to be the only team that didn't understand what Gobert does at the rim. Like you'll just say like, hey, challenge shot blockers. And it's like, yeah, but don't challenge him. And game two, <laughs> yeah. game two with Memphis is a great example mm -hmm. of it because I think there's two sides of the argument with it too, where you go, he changed that game in that a couple minute stretch, not just with the two blocks that he had, but he had three hard rolls where he finished. And it was like this two minute stretch and that kind of changed the game. And then, you know, Mitchell came back in and then Memphis just wouldn't go away. So credit to them. But I think there's another part of it where you go, okay, John Morant, who's basically a drive guy, he's not stretching the floor at all. He goes for 70 plus points only behind Mikan for his first two playoff games ever. So if Gobert is making that kind of impact, how come Jaws putting up those numbers? Which, again, I think I already know where your answer is going to be, but some people will see it as simply as that. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, watching those first two games, I mean, Ja got a lot of those points. Uh, off off a flow off stopping short of Gobert and making that floater and they also I mean obviously game one too they had the fouls on on Gobert and they kind of abused favors in the minutes he was in the game so they they got they got some money there too but I mean John Morant was tremendous I mean was his the other answer obviously I mean he he played great these last two games yeah because if you go through it and and I pulled it up um you know if you go net rating defensive rating i mean net like this is where i did a filter this morning 55 regular season games which can mm -hmm. even eliminate some of the guys because so many guys missed games yeah but you know gobert's net rating and this is basically the guys that played 55 games regular season he's number one in the nba at plus 16 
And the guys that are behind him are Niang, Ingles, and Royce O'Neal in the NBA, which tells yeah. you, because those guys are out there with Gobert, the first non-Jazz player is Giannis, who's plus 10. He's five points behind Gobert, which is just a galaxy away when you start yeah. to look at some of these numbers. Um, but then I'll look at, okay, well, what happens in certain playoff matchups? Because we've seen it in the regular season, too. What is Steph looking to do? He wants to get Gobert, and he wants to attack and stretch him away from the floor. Chris Paul, if Phoenix plays Utah and Chris Paul's healthy, it's a long ways away if it even happens. I can tell from the regular season matchups, he's hunting for Gobert. So in the context of like numbers versus what's actually happening out there, I think there's at least that's part of my argument for at least not having Gobert second overall in the MVP vote, where I go, I still have a hard time with him with some of the stuff, even though I do understand the numbers and how impressive they are that we still have guards that are going, I actually want him because in a switch and getting him further away, I can expose him more than I'm worried about. Him. Well, the other reason you want him on the switch, though, is that that means he's not at the rim. Right. Right. I mean, like if you get because like if Niang's out there, you want Niang. The problem is once you get by Niang, you still have to deal with Gobert at the rim. Whereas if you have Gobert out on the perimeter with you and you get by him, OK, I can finish over Bogdanovich. Like that's not a big deal. So I think there's another piece of that, too. And it's also part of just playing with a five is that people are hunting him to try to yeah. get him away and, and get because I don't care who Gobert is. Once he says to start backpedaling against Dame, against Chris Paul, against Steph, it's just he's it's it's going to be over for him it's, the same it's way. It's hard for any big. It's why they do, do that with all their bigs, right? Yeah. And that's kind of why I always love Garnett and why he'd be the perfect five now is that you never want to switch like you were like, actually, I don't want you out here. Yeah. Because I can't get past you, which was the absurdity of what Garnett was in his prime. Yeah. And I mean, you saw that last year with Bam Adebayo a little bit, where and now teams have figured out to attack Miami, they actually have to go other places and and not try to get that switch with Bam and instead try to kind of maroon him on the other side of the floor if you can. Yeah, because the jaw, like they go to Quinn Snyder and, you know, everybody's like, hey, how can you stop this guy? And he's like, we got to stop him going vertical. And you're just like, good luck. Because you can't. Like you, Conley tried, O'Neal tried, and you're right. Because the dangerous part about Ja, who I'd put him in that floater group, maybe Trey's the best at it. I mean, I don't have the floater numbers in front of me. I think Steph's terrific as well. But when you can stop short, and then even Ja can stand there for a second or two, and everybody's freaked out about what he's going to do, and it actually creates space just by the anxiety of what Ja, because his jump is quicker than everybody else. His vertical's insane. And so, he makes, I mean, he makes floaters, you watch, where he's like jumping s sideways five feet and then shooting the floater. Like the, the degree of difficulty on his floaters is actually pretty impressive. Like Trey Young's floaters are pretty good too, but Trey's more straight line. Like his floaters are impressive because he's running full speed and then shoots a floater. And you're like, wow, you can do that. And, and with Ja, it's more just the athleticism of his floaters where he's moving so much left to right or or north south in space while he's taking it yeah the angle part of it is is really impressive it's almost like these mini euro steps involved in also getting off yeah. to like a zion level jump uh we did this in the open a little bit because i'll ask and you were you were gone just so our listeners and you were gone before jaw was was taken correct uh yeah yeah right i okay. mean it was it was <laughs> There was, there's some gray area there, but effectively, yes. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask you about the gray area. <laughs> well, uh, okay, because we do know this. Like when got when front offices have changeover, yeah, I think it always they, blows fans' they, minds away that yeah, they're like, they, why are they these made guys? The change, they made the change after the season, but I was still employed by them. I was still technically employed by them when we drafted Job, but I wasn't in the room. All right, but you were part of the 
I, I imagine, you know, they're not going to not want you as a resource. So we're, because now it's, as we touched on the beginning, it's like you're starting to hear people be like, hey, Josh should have gone one. I'm not necessarily ready to, to go there, but where are you on that? Uh, so, I mean, Zion was pretty awesome this year, right? So, yeah, like, it wasn't like he still, wasn't good, right? Right. It's it's still still probably you still probably default to that. Um, I, I still th- the thing you wonder about Zion is the longevity, and you know if so if you're going to get, you know, are you going to get ten years of Ja at this level and five years of Zion at his level, you know, before before everything breaks down? I think I think you can, I think it's fair to ask that question. Yeah, it is. And I also have moments with Ja where I feel like he's going to have the most slam ball-ish type ACL injury we've ever seen in a basketball game. <laughs> right. He's so wiry and the forces he's putting on that body. I know you kind of, you kind of cringe sometimes and, and wonder and, uh, or if he's just going to crumple in a heap going for one of these poster dunks on the wrong seven footer. Yeah. I know. I don't want him to change anything about it, but some of his landing, but you're right. I mean, yeah. safe or better if you were going health wise, it would still be Ja over Zion. Was there ever any you said you weren't in the room, I guess. I mean, nah, was there ever nah. any discussion? I mean, all, all I know is like I had been, you know, up until that point, like I had gone on scouting trips to see Ja sure. because I was still part of that front office. So like we we really liked him. We didn't know we were getting the second pick, remember? We were still like in the playoff race the first half of the season and then the bottom fell out and and we moved up from nine to two in the lottery also. Uh, so we, it wasn't really a, a, a heavy debate at the time. But the other guy everyone was talking about was Barrett. And like, we knew we liked John better than Barrett. Like we were pretty sure about that. Um, so uh, yeah, job versus Zion, it didn't really come up that much. I think Zion was such a default for everyone at number one. That would have been hard. Yeah, that's, but I, I'm glad you answered the Barrett part of it too, because I, you know, going into that year, it was Barrett was supposed to be one. Um, yeah. And then pretty quickly yeah. you were like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. And then you could just hear as, as you guys do, like more and more people that I would talk to like, have you watched Ja yet? Like, do not fall for the competition thing here. Like this guy's yeah. nuts. Like it's, he's all that. And he's in the conversation. Um, the thing I always liked about you is you always felt like a different media member when you were in the media. So what was the biggest shock to you once you transitioned from media to working for a team? Um, biggest shock. Uh, I don't know if shock is the right word, but the, the amount of time you have to spend uh, or the amount of time a front office spends dealing with things that aren't really about the basketball, I guess. Uh, and, and that's actually increased. And I mean, I talked to people this year, I know with the COVID stuff, like it's taken over their lives and they like, can I just watch a game for like one hour, you know? And uh, uh, th- thankfully that's starting to calm down now, but uh the a lot of the stuff with uh the health and maintenance of players has become a much bigger deal even from the time i started has become a much huger thing uh i mean you saw it with the mitchell thing with game one there's just so many more people involved it's not just the trainer doing you know thumbs up thumbs down anymore and so that that's a whole layer i think that's been added on that a you have to do a lot of work just to understand and b uh to to manage and kind of have all the left hand and right hand knowing what everyone's doing and have all the processes nailed down and when it you know when it breaks you can get a situation like what happened with mitchell in game one yeah the minutes 
discussions have been, you know, a completely new world in, in the way that yeah. we've talked about it. And I would say, I think it almost leans towards obsessive, but I mean obsessive in that I still think there's a lot of guesswork. I think a bunch of smart people will get together. They'll get somebody on the medical side to say this, yeah, this is the way to go about it. And then I'm like, okay, but do you, but do you know that? Or are we just trying to make something more complicated? And it's already complicated enough. Sometimes I'll argue that people will try to make simple complicated. In this case, we know the minutes and health and projection and what's the best way to have maintenance for these amazing athletes. And it's like, are you trying to make it even more? Did you ever feel like you, you understood something better or were it, was it just guesswork with more data? To me, it was risk management, right? So you're, you're just, and you're, you're doing risk management in, a, in an area of gray because you can say, you can say okay, we know, we know these loads correspond to this amount of risk, but you can't definitively say like, oh, minute 37, that's it. He's going to snap in half, you know? And so uh, it, it becomes art more than science at some point. Uh, but I, I do think, though, that uh, there it was necessary to put in guardrails at certain points, like especially when we had Mark coming back from the foot injury uh, at the beginning of that next season. I think those guardrails are really helpful to uh, prevent a re-injury. Uh, and, you know, we were able to get him through the whole season and made the all-star team. So uh, you, you can see where the benefit comes in, but it, it could be – the process of getting there can be hugely frustrating for everybody, including the players. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine because you've got coaches and if they've been around longer, some assistants are going to be like, you're going to be kidding me. And then yeah, this, you know, sometimes- This isn't the way we used to do it, yeah. eh? And also, I mean, the player, like they're competitors, man. They were like, they want to be out there. And like, even if, you know, even, even if they're obviously injured to the point that like something is dangling, they're like, come on, man, let me go, you know? So when you're just saying like preventive rest, you're not going to play tonight. They're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? So uh, that, that, that whole discussion, uh, I think now, thankfully, you know, as, as times have evolved, I think there's more understanding uh, even on the player side now that, okay, this is a thing that can help extend my career and keeps me healthy and whatnot. So there, there's benefits to it, but it's, it's still a very tricky uh, discussion to have all the way around, just, just to understand what's happening, then to uh, herd all the cats and get everybody pointed in the same direction as to what your strategy is going to be. How challenging is it to actually pull off a trade? You know, it's weird. Sometimes it depends who you're dealing with and uh, depends on the complexity of it. I've actually had a trade uh, that was done in one call with the guy on the other line literally just going, okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, I've, Does I've that make had, you nervous? Are you like, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to do this. No, it was, uh, it, it was close enough to the trade deadline that I, I thought that was, it was when you see, once you get within a couple hours, of the trade deadline, it, all the bullshit goes away and people just, I can swear in this, right? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and cause people just have to show their cards. Right. And so people that have been bluffing with you for three months, they they eventually have to come clean if you haven't if you haven't taken the bait on their bluff. So uh, it's 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 interesting though because there there are there are some teams that you just know that it's it's probably not going to happen. Like just whatever the personal dynamics are of the relationships in the front offices or just the way the person on the other side operates, you just know that okay, we're probably not getting a deal done with this team like ever. Yeah, because I think for all the people that 
you know, have, have covered it and have done it for a long time. And we've seen more, um, transition. I, you know, I don't know if David Kahn has ruined it for media members forever, but, um, I don't know if you're tight with Kahn, so I, I apologize if that's, that's, uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right. um, but the relationship part of it is completely dismissed in your ability to do the job. And whether it's the agents or other front office people, I mean, player to player, there's just going to be a different level of, of conversation. It doesn't mean that they're going to trust each other. As you know, on the media side and the front office side, there are, there are decision makers that talk their players up to a point where it's just absurd. Um, yeah. And then there's other guys that just like to talk. And there's other guys that will never talk because they feel like just by talking on the phone that they could subconsciously give you some kind of lean that's a competitive disadvantage, all these different things. So I... I always feel like it's so much harder to to find ways to change your team in the NBA. I mean, football, you can make all sorts of cuts. Coaching has more of an impact. Baseball, there's less financial restrictions. But for an NBA front office to say like, hey, we have a real need and we got to figure something out, there's still a pretty good chance you're never going to be able to address it. Yeah, or you have to grossly overpay to address it. Yeah, because you you just have a limited number of partners between the between the salary cap and the type of players who are available that could actually address your need. And then the position of those teams, like if, if there's somebody on another team who you're like, oh, he'd be perfect here, but that's the team we're competing with at the top of the standings, then obviously they're not going to trade you that guy. So you, you know, you, you end up sifting through some maybe suboptimal options that can still help you or overpaying a little bit. I mean, if you're, when you're a contender, those are the types of discussions you're having. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we were kind of in that position for the majority of the time I was there. So it, it does get tricky. Did you go into it thinking like, I'm going to have an approach. Like I want to always be positive. Cause you know, you, you have to worry about the ownership conversations that happen mm -hmm. where owners can get on the phone with each other, you know, depending on who's president GM, who's making decisions, who might be more forthcoming. I would, I would almost wonder if you'd have your guard up a little bit more because you'd be like, hey, John, you know, was calling about the roster. And then you're sitting there being like, we love Bryce Cotton. Like, what do you mean? You know, like just just talking your own guys up, like what your strategy was as a guy talking oh, with see. other front yeah, offices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually, uh, usually you want to be somewhat truthful because the team – like if a team doesn't know what you what you're trying to do or what you're looking for, it's it's hard for them to imagine and be creative in terms of ways to help you that you might not have thought of. It's it's just so much harder to arrive at a at a trade at that point. So if you're actually serious about doing something, it does help to be somewhat honest about it. Uh, where it gets tricky that like when they ask you about a player on your team, typically even if the guy sucks, you're gonna be like, oh, we love that guy. What are you talking about? And then. Uh, you know, as it gets closer to the closer to the trade deadline, you call them back and they're like, actually, would you take a second round pick to take them off our hands? You know, uh, but uh, the bi bigger picture, I think it's like the, the best approach to me is like relatively honest with about like a 20 percent fantasy layer on top. And th th that to me usually gets you your best outcomes where you're you're still you're still talking about things that are somewhat realistic. So they're going to stay on the phone with you. They understand what they're, what you're trying to do. Um, but you're not, uh, negotiating against yourself either. Back to this season. Um, who did you pick for the finals? Uh, who did I pick at the start of the season? I think I, you said, can do now. I mean, if you want to, yeah, right, right. 
<laughs> I, well, if you want to give us the star, I, I know how some guys can be like, well, I picked in the beginning and you're like, all right, whatever. I think I think I had the Clippers and uh, did I have Philadelphia in the East at the beginning of the year? I think I might have. I mean, this is before Brooklyn got Harden, obviously. Uh, I mean, right now, I mean, Brooklyn has the most talent. To me, it's the question of can those three guys all stay on the court through an entire playoffs? Because all three of them have had some uh, pretty serious health issues recently. And so, uh, you know, is the wear and tear of the postseason going to going to knock them out? If they're all three on the court, Milwaukee and Philadelphia are really interesting matchups because they don't have the size to deal with them. But I just wonder if they're just going to score so much that it doesn't matter. Does Brooklyn make you change the way you look at like what the acceptable level of defense is for a team? Uh, yeah, I mean, not really. It's more like, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're just trying to do points scored versus points against, right? Like if, if you have the best offense ever, then you can, you know, what's acceptable for defense obviously changes. So I, I think they're just inevitably their pathway is just being so ridiculous on offense that it doesn't matter. Now they've actually played some pretty good defense in these first two games against Boston, but I also think, you know, Boston to quote our former player, Matt Barnes, uh, Boston brought some spoons to a gunfight. Yeah. Now Boston, when you go in 20 minutes for Jabari Parker and he's actually getting buckets for you, you're, you're probably in some trouble in the playoffs. Um, do you would you rather have this Brooklyn offense or the Golden State one with Durant? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, do, do I get to keep Draymond? <laughs> then I'd rather have. Yeah, uh, no, for I'm, my I'm defense, giving, right? I'm, like, if you say, "Hey, this," because we realized that too historically, and I brought this up before that yes, Brooklyn per 100 is who they are, but they're per 100 in today's game, which is still absurdly yeah, more offensive, you know, than than even five years ago. So. Four years ago, um, so I, I, look. My point is that I get what the numbers say, but I'd rather have those five guys from Golden State than I would these five. The thing, the thing that Golden State had that Brooklyn doesn't ha- yet have is kind of the they were so in sync with each other, you know that yeah. it, it wasn't just that they were all individually awesome. It was that then then their their system like it just all fit and worked. So Brooklyn, Brooklyn's Brooklyn's getting there. But there's still a lot of your turn, my turn to to them. And that may still take a while to to get out of their system. You pick Phoenix in the first round over the Lakers. And clearly, we know that this is before the Paul part of this. So that changes everything. He's not looked good when he's even been out there. Um, I think his his projection of his own health is probably a little bit higher than it feels like, at least what we've seen. We'll see what game three looks like. I was surprised because I just felt like with the size, there were moments in the regular season and Davis in that last regular season game who just dominated Phoenix. And then, you know, for Davis, as much as I love him, he always feels like he needs a bit of a wake-up call sometimes to get himself going. But what was it about that matchup when both were healthy that you still liked Phoenix coming out of it? But the biggest thing to me is I just didn't think LeBron was 100%, and I don't think he's looked 100% in these first two games. So I thought full-strength Phoenix was good enough to beat not full-strength Lakers. Uh, and I, th- I thought that bore out in, in game one. Now, game two, obviously, it didn't didn't work out the same way. They just were able to load up so much on Booker without without Paul being there. They do they do need Chris Paul full strength by I would say game four at the latest in order to win this series. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll see how that plays out. But you know, you know the the other thing with with the Lakers, I think um, 
I, you know, I didn't allude to this when I wrote about it, but Monty Williams coached Anthony Davis in New Orleans. And I think he has a pretty good idea of what you want to do against him to take away some of his strengths. And because if you make him a jump shooter, like he can make them, but it's just, you know, you're not scared. Like it's not, it's not messing up your defense. It's just like, okay, great shot. Let's go down the, the, the other end. And, uh, and there's not a lot, ton of shooting around all that for the Lakers either, especially if LeBron isn't in superhero mode. So uh, I still think the Lakers are, are going to have some issue scoring uh, unless they can get that version of LeBron back. What would you do um, if, if you're running the front office for the Clippers and they get bounced in the first round by the Mavs? Uh, <laughs> I'll take my resume. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, I mean, Balmer is not known for his patience. So that that's going to be an interesting thing there. Uh, I think uh, it's interesting because the focus has been, I think on the guard situation and how they don't have a real point guard and it puts a lot of pressure on Kawhi and that's part of it. But the part I don't get is them getting lit on defense. Like you have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Patrick Beverly, like you, you have elite perimeter one through three. And Luca is just shredding you these first two games. And they, they just look confused, uh, like not, not on the same page of what, they're, of what they're even trying to do, let alone whether it's the correct tactic. They're not even executing the tactic correctly. Uh, just so many box switches and lists, like stuff you don't expect from a veteran team in the playoffs. It's been really odd to see. Uh, so I, I, but if you were going to do something with the roster, I think, you know, you probably try to trade for an upgrade, a point guard. They don't really have any assets left. Remember after that Paul George deal. Um, but what but, do you think George's market? What if Kawhi's like, Hey, I'm coming back, but I'm done with George. I mean, yeah, what would George's that, market I mean, be? That's, that's the other part of it. And what are you, what, who's, who's even out there for you to trade Paul George for, right? I, I think that's the bigger question. Like what, Okay, we want to get rid of Paul George. Okay, what what are we parlaying him into? Who's the other star that's out there right now? I mean, that's part of why John Wall and Russell Westbrook got traded for each other. There was just nobody else left for them to be traded for, right? Between their their contracts and where they were in their careers. So something something else has to happen in another city where somebody of that caliber is available to become Kawhi's new tag team partner. That that's the really tricky part. Okay, before we let you go, we keep it real on this podcast. So okay. I have like two quick ones for you because we haven't talked about this. Okay. But when I went to be like, oh, I'll hit up Hollinger. And then I was like, oh, he unfollowed me. What was the, I'm not great on Twitter, but what do you think was your breaking point with me where you were like, you know what? Fuck this guy. Like I, it was it, was it a Grizzlies observation? <laughs> uh, we know it wasn't anything political because I don't know that I touch on any of that stuff. Hey, we get it. You like the SEC. Um, I don't think I'm not anti UVA, so I don't know that it was that I just, for the staff here, we want to know, I was like, oh, okay. And I don't want, and don't follow me now because I brought it up because I blocked you. All right. I don't, not looking for the fall. Do you remember when it was like, all right, enough of this fucking Rosillo guy. Uh, I think I was, I think I was working for the Grizzlies and, and was, uh, streamlining some of the, uh, media people out of my accounts. Yeah, all right. Maybe I think that that's that that's that's the that's the honest answer. I, I wish I wish I had a more humorous answer than that, but I, I think that's what actually happened. 
All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay. So then the other one, this one's, this one might okay. be a little dicier because okay. I don't know if I want to bring up the player name. Okay. I won't unless you want me to. Okay. But you know, we were, I thought we had a good relationship, but I didn't, I didn't ever like work you as a source. You know what I mean? Like I, I uh-huh. just, I didn't bug you all the time. I'd say hi every now and then. Yeah. There's a couple of times we talked pre-draft and, and we would just chat about some players. Yeah. I always felt like yeah. we were on the same page and it wasn't like, I was like, Hey, tell me everything you're doing with the Grizzlies. Cause I also know uh-huh. we don't have, you don't ask guys those kinds of questions. And honestly, you know, unless you have the best relationship with someone, they're not going to open up that way to you. Right. Cause we, we weren't that kind of close. I asked about a player that I actually didn't have a ton on a foreign player in the draft and you were like don't waste your time sucks can't play and i was like oh all right he's still playing oh shit okay (laughs) and i'm thinking that he's a first rounder so i was like did he just go like and you ended up you guys never had him you never you know so i could tell you who the play but it was it was funny because i was like did he just lie did he just lie to me to be like ah, i'm just gonna lie to Rosillo about this or maybe you just didn't like this guy i don't know i mean it's tough uh, for you now because you're you're dealing blind here because you don't know the- i'm not i'm dealing blind but i'm pretty sure i probably whiffed on the guy because I, I i don't think i would have said that just as a smoke screen I, yeah that, that's I, what like, i thought it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been worth it would have been worth the, the trouble for me to smoke screen something like that because like i said we did it's not like we picked the guy right so. no you never had so, him. Do you want me to tell you who it is, or do we want to just not go there? If you're 1% hesitant, we, we don't have to do it. Don't do it for the sake of the pod. It, nah, you can tell me after the show. Okay. All right. Perfect. We'll do it that way. Well, I, I, we're not going to be able to keep in touch, though, because I'm going to block you. If you follow me, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Please check out Hollinger's work on The Athletic. Um, the playoff coverage has been terrific. You guys do a great job. And as always, appreciate your time. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate, is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This is a real treat for me, and I hope for some of you who know who he is or at least are going to learn about him today. Esoteric, S-O, Zarface, rap group. New album, Super What, is out. And for fans of MF Doom, it's his chance to hear him again. Um, before we get to the MF Doom part of this, because I definitely want to talk about your story. And, and I know about you through my brother. My brother's a lot cooler than me. He's, uh, he was first a DJ, music producer now. I mean, he's making his music. And he's doing all those things. But he used to go to, like, was it Middle East? And he would go to some of those, like, underground shows. And he opened for Mr. Lift one time when he was super young. And like it blew his mind because he was like, he was so cool to me. He saw Jay Live do the deal where he, Jay Live does the intro where he's mixing his own while he's rapping over the top of it. Yeah. So he's freaking out. And then he knew about you. And he's like, you got to check out Zarface. You got to check out Esoteric. You got to check out this whole deal because, you know, it's Inspected Deck from Wu Tang and, and this whole deal. Like, so 
What was it like for you? What was your start like? Because Boston, as as we all know, is not exactly a place where it's uh, easy to break out and wrap. Yeah, right. Um, I think we just started out like anyone else that grew up on the culture of like hip hop in the late 80s, early 90s. Young TV raps had a huge impression on all of us. And you start, you know, really falling in love with the music. And then, of course, you want to create some yourself. And it just I fell in love with it. And it started probably realistically, I think I first recorded a record really early 90s. And uh, started doing talent shows at like the Shabu Roller Rink and um, a couple other spots. Then I graduated to the Middle East in the Western Front. It's just kind of a, a Boston Cambridge thing for a while. And then soon there was an independent hip hop boom. You press your own vinyl and it goes everywhere. And then the rise of the internet. And then people are in Italy know your name. And then you're going out to Italy doing shows there. And it's like, wow, it gets to your head. But um, yeah, I think. I think uh, it's just the timing was 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 right on our side because in 1988, I was had I just thought it was magic making a record. There's no way you could do it without a record label. How many people told you we're the exact we're almost the exact same age? Um, the yeah. comic book references are hilarious to me. I'm like I'm probably like you where I get mad at the Secret Wars movie because I'm like the comic was was way cooler and what they did and this isn't this isn't Secret Wars. Like, why are you guys calling this Secret Wars? That's not what this is. Um, which is such an I'm I'm afraid to even expose myself that I understand what that means. But I can't imagine how many people were like, "What are you gonna do?" Like, how many people told you to not pursue what you've done with your life? Um, a lot, man. And I think that's the fuel, you know, you want to prove people wrong. You want to let them know that, you know, you're nothing is really going to, uh, take you out of the game. You're going to stand strong and get up, you know, you fall down eight times, get up nine times. I feel like it's been like that forever for us, but I think that gives us a lot of that energy. People doubt, doubt us. And then, you know, but here we are, you know, and a lot of our contemporaries have trailed off and done other things. And we're still doing what we love, you know? So I, I think in the beginning, you know, my dad actually was was who I think most people would think would be the person that would want to steer you away from something like that. But he was actually, uh, he embraced it. He encouraged it. And then he started trying to fall in love with hip hop and like, you know, listening to Stetsasonic and EPND and things like that. And he supported me in that way. And uh, I think that he was an English teacher. So I, I learned to play with words a little bit, and, I, and I, I felt like I could impress him, even though I know, you know, it's not Shakespeare, but it's it's uh, you know a way of using the English language in a way that uh, I don't know that it's effective, touches people in a way. Who was your guy then growing up? I mean, I, I imagine we probably have a lot of crossover on like the first because I just you know look, I remember everybody first of all was run dmc because you were like this yeah. is so cool because it was like it felt like it was only them and that's only them for the way um, we were exposed to it not you know living in a city or at least for me you know i'm not speaking for you not being in new york city at the start all this stuff and then you know whether it was i mean shit rob bass was cool for us in junior yeah. high you know <laughs> yeah. um rock him was, was probably like the first guy and then you know this west coast thing comes in but yet it's you know stetsasonic to me was like how are these guys not more popular? You know what I mean? And I remember the first time yeah. I heard Guru's voice and manifest and I was like, oh my God, like, what is this? Like, who is, who's this fucking guy? And then, right. you know, you, you learn later on, like how much, you know, DJ Premier and the whole deal. Um, Dean Ice, 
I that whole tape and then getting to know Derek Jones, you know, Dean Ice, getting to know him later on in life and be like, no, I'm not kidding you. Like that was I made our, I think, seventh grade basketball team come out to that. My set up a tape cassette and come out to my name is Dean Ice. And that was our layup line <laughs> deal. And my dad was cool with it. He was like, yeah, whatever, whatever you guys want to do. But uh, who were those voices for you early on that you were like, OK, well, you know, this is what well, I'm about now. First of all, I think layup lines and coming out to hip hop back then. It was a, was a staple for a lot of a lot of kids. Even the kids that were into Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith and all that stuff, they were cool if we came out to Public Enemy or you know because there was you know there's the kids on the team that loved hip hop and the kids on the team that loved Guns N' Roses and all that stuff. But like NWA, there was a middle ground there, right there. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and you could you could uh, you could really express yourself. Like we'd walk into gymnasiums with a you know a big radio blast and PE or or something like that. It just gave you a little bit of energy. But my guys. Uh, Chuck D, KRS-One, Guru, um, EPMD, Cool Keith, uh, Ultramag, you know, uh, and really any one of these guys, man. You know, and, and I, was, I was saying the other day, I was talking to Deck about the Mount Rushmore of MCs. And we have the same, the same ones, you know, there's Cool G Rap, KRS, Chuck D. I would put Ice-T on there too. Um, but it's, it's interesting talking to him about that stuff since he was he got right in in the very early 90s when he could still look up to somebody like big daddy kane in the same way i would but you know when wu-tang exploded they exploded and it it just the levels the levels changed you know where i was and where deck was but it's just interesting for his perspective growing up in new york so how did that come about then? Like, how did how did the Inspector Deck connection with you and then the foundation with 7L and, and Zarface, like, how did that go from, holy shit, these, this is Wu-Tang, and now, like, I'm in a group with them? Yeah. Uh, we made our first record with Deck together in probably 99, um, and it was for a 12-inch single, and Deck was a feature. And back then, getting a, a feature from somebody like Inspector Deck was just unheard of. And the feature game then was not as... Uh, it didn't seem like such a staple for people. Like you have to fill up a record with features. Nowadays, we drop a record, you know, people want to know, well, who, who are the features on it? I'm like, man, we're the features. <laughs> we, we should be the reason you're buying the record. Not because, uh, you know, but I think it's just a reflex for people. You know, even if the greatest rapper of all time is going to drop a record, I still want to know who the guests are just out of curiosity. Um, but yeah, 99, 98 or something, we made our first record called Speaking Real Words with Deck. And then I was starstruck out of my mind. We recorded it in Brooklyn. And when I when he first recorded right in front of me, he wrote the rhyme probably in about 15 minutes and just delivered it maybe maybe two takes max. And I was like, this this is why Inspector Deck is who he is, you know, because it's just uh, an effortless thing for him. Um, so we kept the relationship throughout the years where we send him beats He'd reject them or he'd take them or, you know, we try to, we just kept in touch. And then in 2000 something, maybe 2010, 7L had the idea of forming a group with Inspector Deck, which to me was just heresy. I just didn't think we could ever pull that off. I didn't think Deck would ever be down to it, down to do it. And um, he was, he was down to do it. And then I, I was just blown away by that and decided to come up with a, some type of a, a figurehead for the group, some type of a, a you know, a representation of the music and came up with our face and the, the, the character. And that has transitioned into, into comics and action figures and uh, that world. 
Yeah, I mean, you got you guys describe Zarface as a hero and a villain. Um, yeah. And if if you don't know, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, "What the hell's going on?" Here's the deal: like, you guys have fun with it. You know, you have. I was lucky enough right before everything kind of shut down. I got to see you up in L.A. And I'll admit, like rap concerts, usually it's not my number one to do list. You know, I'll be yeah. like, "All right, some guys, yeah." It's, sometimes you're like, "I don't know." And I was like, you know, I, I wanted to come see you guys because I'd had so much fun and going backwards and learning about everything. And it does have such an old school feel to it. So for guys our age that maybe look at rap now and like, I, you know, I don't really know what's going on, which isn't entirely fair, by the way. But um, that's what draw me, you know, draw me to you guys. But you're fun about it. It's it's a fun show. And it is kind of about the beats first, which, you know, I don't want to speak for you guys, but like there's there's a musical element to it that is beyond um, some other smaller shows that you may go to where you feel like, okay, I got it, you know? Yeah, I think um, it kind of came out that way naturally because that seems to be our common ground, me and Deck. you know what I mean? He grew up in Tilly Hill Projects in Staten Island, you know? And I grew up out here in Mass, and it just, I can't talk about some of the things that he grew up with. And I think we connect on the pop culture stuff because we both grew up with comic books. You know, he told me he used to steal steal comic books from Method Man back in the day. And they had, you know, you go in and Method go into a store and he'd take the Ghost Rider or whatever it was, be out. And they fostered their love for comics that way. And um, and I think that's a meeting point for us and having fun with it. And we're both, you know, as, as you said, we're, you know, you and I are the same age and Dex right around there too. And, you know, you can't really at this point in your life you know, be glorifying some of the things you might have glorified at a younger age. Everyone's a little bit wiser now. And, you know, we just, uh, I think that's kind of where we, you know, make the music and it, and it comes off fun. And I do remember when you came out to that LA show, you hit me and you said, uh, forgiveness on the LA hat. And I was like, I was mortified that you were there. Cause I, you know, <laughs> cause I saw a picture of you and you had the Red Sox hat on. And I was like, Damn, but I was caught up in the moment, man. Plus, you know, Mookie, Manny, no my, my Claretta, whoever else went to the went to the Dodgers, man. I, I, I still like the Dodgers. It's a great hat. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I used to rock one during the summer when I was back home years ago. Okay. So I, it's it's somewhere around here. Yeah. Was there was there ever like when you were hanging out? Because look, you've had Jizz on, who I think is like ridiculous. When when I mean, Liquid Swords is still a go to for me. I, I don't know that there's ten rap albums I'll go back to as much as that one. Yeah. Um. You know, you've had Method Man on, so you've you've worked with these guys, and as you mentioned, you were a little starstruck. Was there any resistance? Where like you know, Spectadex bringing you around? You're like, I'm gonna I'm gonna start working with this guy, and guys are like, like, what was that evolution oh, yeah. of those relationships like with dudes learning about you for the first time, being like, who's this guy? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's was one of his his stories he likes to tell. He got so much shit for working with us. These well, these white boys, you know, I can't, I can't believe you're fucking with these white boys. Why don't you fucking with us and finishing this and doing that? And uh, that's you know that's Dex words telling me. Um, but I think you know the music kind of speaks for itself, you know. And I, uh, clearly, it's it's um, been rewarding for us to continue we, you know we, we've made about five or six records maybe more maybe you know maybe probably more um together and we got a we have a good working relationship and i think he respects what i bring to the table with the lyrics and, and obviously i respect what he does and, and we just you know we got a good thing going 
for MF Doom fans, you're going to want to check this out as well because you'd worked with Doom for a long time. Um, you know, the way I, it's he's such a hard guy to describe. Like, rap is so much about I'm cool, I'm going to take your girl, I'm going to fuck you up. And Doom could just could make you feel stupid, but he didn't want to be cool about it. Like, he was almost making fun of himself in so many different ways. And if anybody were ever explained to me, like, yeah, there's this guy, it's Doom, wears a mask, and he cuts up all these these weird sound bites and you'd be like, eh, what are you talking about? Rap skits on albums? And he's, what does he do? And then I, I found this interview from beef on the sample for beef rap, where it was actually a VHS cartoon that he had a Dr. Doom cartoon where there's this weird part where Doom's mad. And he's telling like his, his, uh, you know, one of, one of his guys that he bosses mm -hmm. around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's like, all right, you know, with lasers we're going to do. And there's just, just like, I, it might even be two measures where it's this collection and MF Doom was like, all right, that's what I'm using for the sample and beef rap. And you can hear it where there's a there's a part of a laser going off in the cartoon. And because they didn't have the real audio, they used the sample from the VHS tape. And so it's still in there. And when yeah. you hear it, if you have an ear, I mean, some people do, some people don't. I hear it. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. And I, I couldn't get out of my head. And then he was and he built the whole song around it. And, you know, I'm, I'm just. I just am so enamored with him as you can hear I me, and I'm obviously tee this back to you because you were friends with him, you worked with him, all this stuff. But like <laughs> when he has a line where it says, if these walls could talk, they probably still wouldn't listen. And you're just like, this guy was on another level of storytelling. But in a way, his style was storytelling where he was still just talking to himself. And yeah. it, it's just, it's so different. And I got my rap friends who were like, what the fuck are you listening to? Because you, know, <laughs> you don't work out to it necessarily. You don't throw it on at parties necessarily. But it's just a collection of brilliance and different ways that he could do things that um, there's never going to be anyone like him. There's just no point. No one would even bother trying to be like him. It'd be impossible. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree in that, um, you know, as you said, a guy with a mask. You know, I remember going to a Doom show in Boston, bringing it was maybe the second or third date I ever had with my now wife. This was probably 2003, maybe. I don't know. We were just, I don't know. We were just kind of getting together. And I knew Doom was playing down the street, this place called Hibernia. And I'm bringing this girl who's, you know, she likes hip hop and stuff, but, you know, we probably, you would think we would react the same way your, your buddies would about describing the scenario, you know? So we go in and, and yeah, I'm like, this is the guy we came to see. And he's, he's in the corner of the building with no stage. There's probably 30, 35 people there total. And he's got this mask on and he's rapping and the 30 people there know every word. They're going crazy. And this was probably right on the right before uh, Mad Villain dropped. And he in Adult Swim uh, raised his profile a lot. And people really caught on to his, his brilliance. Of course, there was the underground core dating back to the 90s. Um, but, you know, you add he just had a way with words and he could speak about himself in third person. He could take on different personas. He could say things that, you know, a villain would say, but not necessarily Daniel Dumoulin would say as a person. You know, he just had a, a way with bending words, making the most obscure words rhyme multisyllabically, syllable for syllable for syllable, you know, five syllable rhyme schemes. It's just uh, they, you're right. There will never be another one. OK, so that's so a I'm so glad you gave me your, your first experience seeing him. When was the first time, like, versus maybe meeting him, but meeting him knowing yeah. that, like, okay, I might be working with this guy. Like, well, I, I don't want to speak for it. Were you friends with him? I mean, was he a close friend? 
when we grew closer as, as the time is, you know, more uh, recent, you know, over the past four or five years working together. But we shared a bill with him, his first show uh, as MF Doom, because he came out as Zev Love X, KMD, under third base in the, in the um, early, uh, early 90s, late 80s. And, uh, you know, and then reinvented himself as MF Doom. And I was a huge fan of KMD, huge fan. I mean, because those guys took the music in a different direction and it wasn't all Raiders hats and death threats. It was more, you know, uh, common everyday things. And, and I, I made me feel, uh, I don't know, put me in a good place, good mood. And then we, we wound up doing a show with him and it was his first appearance as MF Doom. But I knew it was Zev Love X from KMD. I don't know how many people knew that there, but I am now on the stage with an icon to me somebody i had on my wall and it's just completely different because everyone else in the bill i consider my peers my equals regardless of talent but he was just on another level and now here, here i am uh about to wet my pants because this is this is zev love x and you know he became mf Doom. so i guess we had a series of run-ins throughout the years some of my best friends at brick records put out one of his early collaborations with mf Grimm. Uh, shot, shot the, uh, you know, photographed the whole thing, did the graphic design and so forth. We just had a long history, but timing has a way of making things work out. So we never worked together until 2015, and then we hit a stride and, and worked on a couple full-length albums. Yeah, and again, for people trying to keep up um, that may not know about him, I mean, the KMD stuff goes back to like 88, and then, yeah. you know, the Zev Love X, so it's just him... He was different. I mean, he was different in that it was like he was reinventing himself with these different personas, these different characters. Did it change how he was? Was it like an actor playing a different part and then, you know, playing a different movie part years later? Like, how different would he be? I mean, you're telling me you got, you connected more with the birth of Doom and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. but what was he like kind of, you know, just hanging out with as he was going through these different creative processes? Well, I, I think the, the, the art, the way he'd approach the music is the way a, a true artist would approach the music. I mean, the mask really represented, um, you know, it, it took, it, it tried to take the focus off him as a person. And that gave him more of a world to explore. It created a universe where he could be his character, Doom, you know? And I think it was a, a stroke of genius. And he's a very private guy. One of the few artists that, as everyone clamors for attention on social media, and does everything they possibly can to try to get, you know, their 30 seconds of fame or their, their 15,000 likes to whatever. Doom didn't have to do any of that. Doom actually got the energy and the, the exposure and, and through the mystery of it all, keeping the mystique. It's just a stroke of genius. And, you know, me, I can't help but go on Instagram and, and you know, share things from my, my life. It's just something that is in me. Doom was able to hold all that back and keep everything to himself. And that just, that just only made him stronger and only made them the curiosity grow from everyone. You know, give me your best doom story being in a studio, working with him, you know, doing oh, we, some of the stuff you guys did. <laughs> we, we recorded the record. He recorded, uh, in parts unknown, me and death recorded here. So we didn't record the, the albums together. It was more of an email thing, but, we kept in touch a lot um, virtually. And um, I think going on our first album, 
I wanted to put a skit together that uh, was kind of a uh, pay tribute to the first KMD album where they had a lot of voice acting and samples interacting with one another. So him and I worked on that and I would have to, you know, ask him to say, uh, get out of here and you're not going to rob that store. And he would because he would come back with, you know, a whole file of all of these sound bites. And then I would reverse engineer it to build dialogue around that for the skit. And anytime I sent anything to him, he would send it back intentionally misspelled and in all caps. He would change words in their meanings. If I had a, a beat called meat in the subway, he'd spell it meat in the subway like the food. And it, he just had a, a really unique way of doing things. It was just charming all the way around, you know. It was a real yeah. honor to be able to make even one record with him, never mind, you know, a couple albums worth. That had to be an amazing feeling, though, uh, to, to go from, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do some stuff to like, it felt like he was to be part of Super What, the latest release that we have, and, and to, be, to be a part of it, you know, where you're, you're not looking at him as your equal, because I know you wouldn't do that, but somebody yeah. where it's like, we're now beyond, I mean, I know I had that moment, at least for me, with some of the ESPN stuff for years, where my buddies would be texting me, being like, you're on a show, you're on SportsCenter right now with this guy that we watched in college, and you're telling him, like, about something. Like, does that ever yeah. blow your mind? And they go, you know, look, eventually you get numb, you walk out of the tunnel, you go on, you wave, and, and whatever, but there still had to be moments where you go, this guy's, like, excited to come on as our face album like he's excited to be a part of this and the, the whole mask concept where i mean not his mask but the album concept yeah. where he was he was the guy that was the whole battle our face first doom uh that had to yeah. be an incredible moment for you realizing like I'm, I'm doing real stuff now it is you know and i feel like part of for better or worse i always focus on what's next what's next and i think i don't let myself sit back and reflect on that of course it hits me but i'm always thinking and i'm always thinking about what what we what we can do next and with this super what it's it's much different since it came out um you know after he had passed and it's just a, a record that will always feel different hit different to me because of the nature of it and it was all recorded long before he passed and uh but it came out you know after and it just holds a special place that in a weird way is um is kind of a perfect doom final chapter i mean he he died in october of 2020 yeah and what it had been months before anybody knew i mean did you know because the public didn't know yeah only a real small 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 circle of people knew i did not know i learned it that day and i you know uh i dropped my phone i was like what no way and you know I think anyone that follows Doom in his career, you would think the first thing you think is if there's one guy, if there's one guy that could pull this off, pull off some type of a hoax or something like that, because you didn't want to believe it, you know, and uh, it was it was true. And it was very hard to hard to accept for a while. And, um, you know, I, I spoke to his wife and gave my condolences and so forth. And, and um, it's. Uh, I, I, you know, he's, his music will last forever. And as you said, um, there will never be another guy like that. I mean, his mask was inspired by Dr. Doom, right? But through the years, to be more wearable, it, it became the, the mask from uh, Russell Crowe, uh, the Gladiator. So that mask was fashioned after the Gladiator mask. And think about the Gladiator uh, and how much money went into that movie and that production. Doom made that mask more famous than that movie ever could. 
you see that mask and you think doom. You don't think uh, gladiator. I don't. You know, it's an iconic, iconic mask. Yeah, my brother and I were like, did you see that there's there's a website? We bought some hoodies and they were like, they have masks for sale. And I was like, yeah, it's amazing. But like, what are we going to do? Wear them? I was like, if you telling me you want me to get you one, um, cause I was like, they're, they're pretty cool, but I, you know, I don't, <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, yeah. <laughs> Maybe on Halloween, you know? And, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, I see a lot of things on Instagram. People tag me in with them wearing, wearing the mask and celebrating doing it in a sense. And I, I think that's great. The kids dressing up as him for Halloween is just, just amazing. You know, my son, he, he's, he's 12 and, and he knows that we work with this MF Doom guy and it's very interesting to him because he has the mask and it's almost like he's not a real person, you know, and, and uh, it just puts him on a level as if the talent wasn't enough. The imagery really, uh, you know, seals the deal. And through all the years of us working in the, the scene of indie hip hop, underground hip hop, it just, after all the years, we kind of came together and was able to, to work on things. And of course, he's always will be on a different level. So we're very fortunate. It's kind of like when, you know, KG and, and Ray Allen got together after all these years playing in the league. They form a team and uh, win the chip with Paul. I know. I felt like I probably should have because you came out with this Tommy Heinsohn tribute video that was incredible that you sent to me, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. oh do you want me to? Do you want me to get this out there?" And you were like, "No, I just, I just know that you worked with him, and you yeah. know, you just wanted to see it." So then I was like, as I was prepping for this, I was like, "Oh shit, does he think I'm going to ask about Evan Fournier?" And I was like, "No, I want, I want to focus on Doom a little bit more on, on, on this, yeah, on this I pod." Just, I just want to backtrack. I'm not comparing myself to Paul Pierce or Ray Allen or anything like that. I was more like the James Posey in this situation, but of that team or maybe an Eddie house. All right. But you know what? I didn't take it that way, but you have an out in case, in case anybody does. Um, Leon Paul. I love Leon Paul. <laughs> Me too. I, I look and I, I love what you guys are doing. What, uh, what's next for you? I imagine trying to put together some idea, getting back out on the road. You guys are incredibly prolific with the releases. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we are, uh, yeah, we're working on a couple different releases. We have something really cool coming up that uh, I can't talk about, unfortunately, but I, I'm frothing at the mouth to talk about it. So eventually, you know, uh, I'll spread the news about that. But there's there's a lot of cool things in the works. We're doing um, a lot of merchandising, a lot of stuff with Arvin Goods. Arvin Goods is a sustainable sock company that does his R-Face sock. And I think a lot of the things that you can't download um, are a big source of income for us. You can't stream an action figure. You can't stream a hoodie. So you go to czarface.com, you can buy things that you can actually hold and tangible. And they gotta, you have to give us money for that stuff. So. <laughs> Look, the gear is fun. The Arvin stuff's great. Your guy hooked me up a couple of years ago. And then, you know, I have a, a sleeveless. I made some modifications in one of the Czarface tees and people kind of like, what is, what is that? What are you doing there? And then I gave the socks to my brother and he thinks they're, they're cool as hell. So oh, I'll, uh, I'll definitely send you more. I'll, I'll, he, he'll be very, he's a faithful listener of the show. All right. Well, it's at Zarface underscore S-O, and that's C-Z-A-R for all the people that are going to have a hard time. So just go C-Z, and then it's going to come right up in Spotify or Apple and, yeah. and check these guys out. Because if you haven't heard them, I, I'm telling you, if you appreciate any of the stuff that we were referencing there, you're going to enjoy them. So um, thanks, man. And hopefully uh, I'll get to see you out there again soon, all right? Oh, I can't wait, man. I thank, thank you so much for having, having me on. 
This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Let's see. What do we got here? I feel like, all right, we'll do this one. The cushion incident. Need your help settling a dispute with my wife about what we're now calling the cushion incident. Last week, we had a few friends over for some drinks and dinner, six people, not including us. So we're talking eight folks, keeping up with the math. It was a great night. Everyone had fun. That was that, or so we thought. The next morning, I noticed a small red stain on the carpet in our living room, a small red stain on the carpet, right beneath one of our cushioned chairs. Upon investigation, I uncovered a huge wet red stain on the cushion of our light colored chair. The wine had soaked through the chair and onto the carpet. All right. So we're talking like, imagine an elevator of stain on cushion level going all the way to carpet level. So that's like, that's a, that's a heavy pour on that chair. Okay. So many thoughts immediately ran through my mind. Let me summarize some facts. This is like uh, knives out the movie. None of our guests were ever alone in the room. There were two brief times where neither my wife or I were in the living room. During those few minutes, there were at least four or five people in the room at all times. All right, so there's never a solo moment for anyone at the party. Our friend, (laughs) I'm going to have to change the name just in case. Our friend Veronica was sitting in the chair most of the evening, but her husband, Philippe, also sat there at times. All right, so Veronica and Philippe went, uh, occupied the chair but combined 100% of the time, based on the evidence we have here. We were all drinking red wine, so you can't be like, oh, slow gin fizz guy, at it again. I'm pretty confident Veronica spilled the wine, but that doesn't bother me as much as the six-person conspiracy to cover it up. Did they not think we'd notice? Did nobody think to grab a napkin before they all decided, yeah, let's flip the soaking wet cushion and pretend it didn't happen? We could have saved the carpet, Ryan. (laughs) I've asked all of our friends about it, but everyone says they didn't see anything or acts fake surprised about the whole thing. I like that our guy knows that it's fake surprised. Add that to our notes, Kyle. My wife is starting to doubt the stain happened on that night. Or somehow it happened without anyone noticing. She wants us to just forget about it, eat the cost, and move on. Nope. I'm not having this shit, Ryan. 
all of these motherfuckers spilled some wine. Or excuse me, one of these motherfuckers <laughs> spilled some wine. I need closure. So my plan is to invite the same group over for another party, flipping the cushion back over so the stain is full is on full display. All right, so there's a cushion on the chair. We're gonna, he's going to put that stain side up, and then we'll see what happens. I figure if I get everyone in a room and address it together, somebody is going to crack. My wife is very against this plan. She thinks it'll be super awkward, yes, and needlessly confrontational. Perhaps. I disagree. I just don't see how we can brush this under the rug. I didn't even think he meant to be funny there without at least confronting our friends about lying to our faces and ruining our stuff. True friends wouldn't act this way. Should I let this go? What would you do in my shoes? All right. Lot, lot to deal with here. Okay. So I want to just double check one of our cushioned chairs. Because the first time I read that, I thought, like, I have some of those chairs that are cushioned, but they're upholstered. So, and then I have slips over them. And I got to make sure if you're a solo guy like me and you're always at one chair, rotate the chairs, folks. Just keep them rotate. When it's just you all the time, you have to learn to rotate your chairs and also your couch cushions. Keep those in rotation because I didn't do that. And after five years, I had two brand new sides of the sectional and the chase. And then there was one part where you would have thought somebody slept on it outside for a decade. All right. And I had to get it custom made. And that sucked. Don't know why I shared any of that. Um, I like where your head's at here, but there's one thing that you have to handle first. If you're going to do this version of clue at your house with the same group where it's not about the party, it's a complete setup to get to the truth here, which is weird. Your wife is right about that part, but I'm not against it. You have to be 100% certain that it happened that night. And this email doesn't get me to 100%. There's a little doubt here. I have a little doubt because my the quote here, my wife is starting to doubt that the stain happened on that night or somehow it happened without anyone noticing. All right? You seem to be 100% certain. She's not 100% certain. So we don't add up to 100% average uncertainty here. Because if you do do this and it didn't happen at that night with the same six people that you invite back and you turn into a psycho, that's going to be irreparable for you, my man. This crew is never going to look at you the same way. Because if, if they actually didn't do it and this whole setup is to get to the truth and they're actually innocent and you don't seem to believe that, then you're going to deal with some serious damage post this investigation. Um, now if you're going to do this, I would start here. I would not have the cushion on display initially. I would start with drinks, maybe pick the pace up a little bit earlier than you normally would for a pre dinner setup, get drinks in people. Then during the kind of kitchen Island area that I'm imagining in your open floor concept. You then flip the cushion and then have all the chairs out as you say, hey, the small plates are being served. So now it's out there because if you go right to the cushion um, reveal, it's too early. People aren't going to be as pliable on some of their commentary because they haven't had any drinks. So I would get drinks in them. I would flip the cushion in a moment away from everyone, have the chairs out. And then you have to read six faces at once 
specifically the face of the person that has the dirty cushion. And you're going to be have to be like a poker player at the table. And then if you don't get a read that you want, you may have to let it go. I would let them initiate it. You know, I would let them expose themselves. But if no one exposes themselves in this moment, then I think you have to just look at your wife and know you're pulling the plug on the plan. Because this is like a Costanza deal. If you set this all up and you start right from the jump accusing people and nobody's had any drinks and what if they're incident, then a lot of these people aren't going to like you and they're going to they're going to talk about you, man, for years. They're going to say, remember when fill in the blank here invited us all over for a second dinner to try to get to the bottom of his stupid fucking cushion being stained and it sucks about the carpet. I get that part sucks. Um, you know, but what would you do here, Kyle? Not have a carpet? I mean, no, I'm a carpet guy now, but I think like, I think this is kind of fun in a weird way and an infuriating way. But my question is, if people are eating dinner, how do you spill on the cushion if you're sitting on it? Like, wouldn't it be a met? Wouldn't it like a person be basically covered in wine at that point? Or would it be another time where maybe not everyone was sitting in chairs and somebody like knocked it over the table? Because if people are eating dinner, sitting down, how do you how do you get out of there unscathed and then and then just you know, hide this wine thing. Like, wouldn't it be all over you as well? Unless you're like standing, pouring wine or something. It's just like, it doesn't seem like, did you have any of your shithead buddies over that? Maybe nobody was sitting in that chair and there was like, you were using the table as like a, a bar or something. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like you'd be able to like, if everyone's at a table, it just doesn't seem like the forensics of it adds up. Yeah, I would. it's fair. All this is fair, but would you agree that You've had moments drinking where something happened that defied physics. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it could have been some weird, you know, grabbing something from the salad tongs and then the person hits the glass and it like lands perfectly in between, you know, some skinny jeans. And, and then you get up at the same time. Hurt. It just seems like it yeah. would have to be perfect. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I just, right. I would just ask yourself, did you have any of your buddies over or something at a different time for like a Sunday game or something? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, when he says he called everyone to ask about it. Because I don't think it's the cost here. I don't think the, I'm not getting a sense here that the guy's super mad about having to replace the carpet. He's mad that he may have been lied. Clearly to. a principal thing. Yeah. All right. Because there's also another part of this. This is going to be the only one we do here. But. What if they all don't like you and they don't care they stained your fucking carpet? Then do the intervention. I, I, what's worse for what's worse for the friend? Like, what's a friendship bomb or more more detrimental? You falsely accusing them of doing this, or them just straight up lying to your face and not telling you about it? Because they're both shitty shitty moves. But one or the other has to kind of be true, unless the wife is lying. Which, because this guy whoa. clearly thinks that it didn't happen. Well, I'm just saying this guy clearly thinks that it happened that night and the wife is having some doubts. So there is, you know, she could potentially be a suspect if we're talking real knives out here. You never know. But it's either they lied to you and they're shitty friends or you're falsely accusing them and you're the shitty friend. There's no there's no win. here. You know what else we need to discuss, too? And this sucks, but because everybody's going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. Would you guys both agree that there are different levels of friends where there's a friend you'd be like, ah, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> And then there's a friend that you go, I have to say something. Yes. And it doesn't even, it does, yeah, right. It doesn't even apply necessarily even to a carpet here. Um, yep. yep. 
there are guys that you know you've done something where you may have like, um, I've, I'll just call myself out here. I remember one one time we uh, we were we were staying with some guys, and um, actually, I, I I'll just I don't need to make more give you more details than that. But your boy ripped out a towel a towel rod um, of of a bathroom. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a plan. It just happened. And <laughs> my buddy opened the door because he was waiting to use the bathroom. And he was like, what the fuck? I go, dude, I, my bad. Like, you know, I, I put, I reached out and, you know, we could, we got some, we got some sheetrock hanging out on the floor. And you just knew in that moment, it was like, I'm not going to say anything. Because there's somebody else that could be blamed. And it wasn't even that I, I just knew that it was going to, this person was going to already have like somebody over there with an estimate and he was going to want me to tape it. And, you know, it was just going to be a huge, huge hassle. It was going to ruin like the rest of the day. I regret it now. I would never do anything like that now. But there's a different level of friend where I immediately would have walked out with the towel rod and gone, hey, my bad. This, this came out of the wall. I'm a big, dumb animal. And was this college? It's two years. I think it's a couple years after college. I think it was two. We're still talking the nineties here. So, I mean, cause, cause the, there's a grace period there where I think when you're young, where you're just, it's expected that you have broken shit in your house. Yeah. You know, if you have some sheet, if you have something exposed brick or like an exposed beam or something or whatever, that's in the wall and some sheetrock that's broken. That's just kind of accepted when you're younger. But if you're, if you know, if you're probably above 30, you have to tell the person. Yeah. If you're you over 30 to. doing this kind of stuff, I think that's a good cutoff line. I mean, look, I, I don't even like, there was a time where I had a guy after a late night, he came back to my place and he was on the couch, passed out. And I went up to use the bathroom the next morning. And I was like, oh man, he's, he was banged up. And then I went into my bathroom. There's only one bathroom and the entire curtain rod, curtain, <laughs> everything just destroyed. I don't know what the hell he did, but he probably got up to go to a bathroom that he wasn't familiar with, didn't navigate it well, and just destroyed my curtain. The whole setup like sucked, you know, ripped out from not just the curtain ripped out of the rod. It was a circular rod around some old antique. I mean, it was an old, old apartment, but I also had a roommate that he didn't know. And I was going to have to deal with my roommate. And the weird thing is like, if you did it to me back then, I'd be like, ah, whatever, I'll figure it out or I'll fix it. Not as well as I should. Um, but I knew this is a problem. So then I was like, Hey dude, I'm like, you destroyed my, my shower. He's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I was like, look, I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to tell you right now, there are two of us. And I know it, it wasn't, you know, it's like somebody farting in a cab where you're like, all right, I know who did it no matter what. And he was like, no, nah, I didn't, I didn't do it. And I was like, you definitely did it. I go, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you right now. You probably don't need the argument, but there are just big people that handle it differently. There's also people when you're really young where you can be like, Hey, I have a dumpy apartment. You have a dumpy apartment. So you think you're a dumpy apartment. Like you don't really care if something happens, but the other person may be like, no, this is my home. This is where I live. And you're not going to disrespect it. And you're like, Hey, I live in the same awful complex you do. So why are you acting like, you know, home and gardens is coming over here for a photo shoot in a little while. It's not happening. So back to our guy on this deal. I like the plan. I like the whole deal. And we've probably planted way too many doubts about the email itself makes me think that this guy's probably well liked by the group. You had six couples come over and hang out with you and your um, wife. So it sounds like everybody kind of gets along here. But if you're going to go through this whole plan, like we said, you have to be 100% on this. Because if there's a chance it didn't happen then and you just didn't realize it and none of these people are guilty, it could be a real game changer for you. 
There you go. Life advice RR at Gmail. We will be back Sunday. Bill and I, um, even with the holiday, I, I, we're not going to miss any pods. So don't worry about it. We'll be good to go. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you.